0: Let's go ahead and get into our teaching right now and as that has been prayed for, um, I'm going to ask you to hold your place in first or second Samuel. Actually, first Samuel, we're closing on it. and you're going to pick it up in verse 17, okay? While you're there holding that spot, I want you to also find yourself over in the Gospel of Matthew. And in particular, in chapter five, and specifically at verse forty-three. Okay, so two areas right now. For Samuel, we'll close on that chapter in a poem that David wrote, and we're going to take a insightful look in how that poem really was the heart of Jesus, even right now in what He teaches. Let me read what he has to say with concern when enemies seemingly are behaving against you and it is reprehensible, it is offensive, it is vindictive, it is wrong. And Jesus addressed it as only he could for he knew what it was like. He says, You have heard, verse 43, that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you, and persecute you." If there were individuals that each possessed that kind of personality, that expressive attribute of evil, that'd be a hard one, wouldn't it? Or if one guy was like that in all of those particular expressions? Look what it says. First of all, this person would be known as an enemy and Jesus commands that we love them it would be an enemy that curses you that means in language that they use against you slanderously Jesus says reciprocate by blessing them the attribute next is hatred And it says that in that case, you are to do good. And then those who spitefully use you and persecute you, you're to pray for them. So that again is verses 43, just through 44 in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is addressing the condition of the heart and the expression of evil. And he's saying, I don't want you to do to them what they are doing to you. On the contrary, I want you to be different, extraordinarily different, convincingly different. And with convincing, which is what God does by the manner in which we handle things uniquely, God demonstrates grace to people. And grace is one of those things that becomes inarguable and profoundly influential in changing the disposition of even the vilest person. All of a sudden, that individual has just been assaulted with love. And I say this, Literally, a salt shakered with grace, preserved in a favorable expression from God when they do not deserve it. And it eventually changes them. Literally, the kindness of God leads men to repentance. And therefore, when Jesus is speaking here, he's saying these are overt acts of kindness, which will lead these who are your enemies to repentance. And when an individual repents, in the truest sense, it means they turn from their old nature and they turn to God for a new nature. Verse 45, that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Everyone is a beneficiary of God. Those who are for God, follow God, exercise faith in God, and those who do not fear God. They blaspheme God and they at times maliciously frustrate the good intentions of God. doesn't mean they get away with it indefinitely, but there certainly are actions in which individuals can put a pause on what God ultimately wants to put his hand to and achieve. So when you see people getting blessed, and it's not what you would do, if you were God, because you know things about him that you don't think God does, there you go. That's why you're not God, because that isn't the way God is. God in this season of grace is a gracious God, and he will demonstrate that to those whom we would say are least qualified, least likely, and certainly Ones that we would be challenged to do that for. But again, these things that have been spoken by Jesus' mouth convey the heart of God. We are to have a different disposition towards those who are wanting to dispossess us, wanting to uh, take advantage of us and even see to our demise. So it's always difficult because it goes against our human nature, which in itself is a self-preservation work. We want to do anything and all things necessary to preserve our life. And God would tell us, "Nope, you died to yourself. You give your life up if necessary for someone else. And, it's it's a compelling argument against our human nature. The only thing that can accept that is a deep spiritual agreeability with what God has said. Verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now, believe it or not, those guys were... Considered pretty despicable in their days because their livelihood was made off of profiting unfairly those who were paying substantially the taxes that were required by Rome in particular. They were ones who had forged an alliance. Their vocation was to work for a secular um, institute, basically, Rome, who were the. And their wage, you know, above base, would be. What you could get out of your fellow man, your fellow countrymen. And that's how they enriched themselves by being unfair. And basically by what would presume to be the threat of law, if you defied them, you know, you'd be taken to jail, your land would be taken. So you had to kind of just put up and shut up. Jesus is saying right now that even the tax collectors would do the same if it had something to give in return. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven Is perfect. So tax collectors mentioned twice on what is their nature to be able to uh, have that which is not rightfully or, if you would, spiritually just, and then to schmooze up to people insincerely, but to do so because it gives them gain favor perhaps the next tycoon that could be more deeply reaching into his coffer for money but the 48th verse is very compelling jesus is really summing it up that as we live there is a perfection of standard and there's a standard of perfection a perfection of standard is you know when you hear the raising the standard, it is, it's kind of like a banner or flag that that troops would bring into battle with them, or that um, conquering uh, armies as well would bring into the cities that they vanquished. It proclaimed who they were, and so at the same time, there is something that relates to this excellence in the standard that God, it says, gives us. We're to be perfect because our Heavenly Father is perfect. And the only way that can happen is if it's imparted to us, right? I can try to be perfect the rest of this day, but I know that something, some incident, something that I don't expect could change the way that I I ultimately translate that and probably it will be indicative of failing to be perfect. So this tells me something about our younger man in First Samuel, King David. He is in many ways a picture of an imperfect human being, but one who shows us how to be perfected in God and shows us that he strove to be perfect in a manner that pleased God. This is one of those incidences that tells us his character for he has come through a grueling 10 years of being on the run with his life threatened. And so moving back into first Samuel, And closing this off, this is what David does when, as we've just read, he finds out that Saul and his sons had been separated from the army of Israel, and they were picked off on Mount Gilboa. We know the archers took out Saul, wounded him mortally, and he ultimately took his life with his own sword, we have the impression that Jonathan and his brother went down with swords swinging. So three men from the first monarchy of Israel die on Mount Gilboa brutally. And they were then savagely and disrespectfully treated and how their bodies were pulled from that battle zone. It's what the Jews would have called the desecration of the holy, of the righteous. They had a relationship with God in which the difference between them being warriors for God and ministers to God was pretty much inseparable. You were doing the work of God and there was nobility to it. And even though we may say as as a culture today, uh, being a warrior is also defiling, God was giving a picture because who they were at war with were godless people, wicked people, vile, perverted, nasty. They were actually in regard to Israel, true enemies of God. God literally ordained Israel to make war with them and to move them off the land that he had given to them. They never were very successful in doing that. I was considering in this teaching as well, just recounting a song that it went pretty high on the charts, a song that was written by Neil Diamond, very successful songwriter in the early sixties and still hit some pretty good, uh, you know, chart toppers right up through, I'm going to say at least the nineties. I don't think he's done other works much since then, but one of the songs that became kind of his, uh, you know, last effective songs was a song sung blue. And it basically is that as a song, a song sung blue, everybody knows one a song sung blue, everybody sings one. And he was basically in the song, just identifying with the fact that when a hardship in life happens, rather than finding what is worthy of praising the Lord with, we withdraw and we begin to put language together that intensifies the depression that we have. Everybody knows the blues, and that's why it's called the blues. It has that feel that the chording and the cadence and it just, you know, some people love the blues. It's not, I don't care for the blues. It doesn't go with my spirit. You know, I'm, I'm much more into a livelier sound and, and lyrics that generate a a better image, you know, something that, that gives me hope for the next measure for the chorus or for my life But I say that because this would not have been a Neil Diamond song. (laughs) This is David's song, and it's called The Song of the Bow. David's acknowledging that right now there's an instrument of warfare that he right now is attributing to his best friend, Jonathan. But as he attributes this to his best friend, Jonathan, and in the same light, it represents the means by which Saul ultimately was wounded. He's wrapping it up in declaring literally the best of who these people were. And we don't know much about the second brother that's on the mountain. Not, not really in what we've studied, but there is another brother, the younger brother of Jonathan who will be raised up shortly And it'll be interesting because of what ultimately you'll see reflected again in in David's disposition towards change and ultimately what seemingly is his time, his moment. And so rather than David getting anxious, rather than him receiving the word and clapping his hands and calling his men together, we've got to strategize. I'm, I'm now king, I'm the next man in, it's going to be my monarchy, let's go ahead and, and plan on the coronation. He decides to write a song of lamentation, but it's a lamenting song that brings glory. And there's a difference. If it was simply a lamenting song, it would be a Neil Diamond song sung blue. It's a song of lamentation because it acknowledges a tragedy, but it looks to highlight the quality of the men's lives. As we went to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5, one of the reasons that we anchored ourselves there is because Saul technically had become publicly and spiritually known as a trekker of an arch enemy, David. In other words, he was out to get him. He hated him. David was worthy of being sought, arrested and killed, when actually everything was contrary to that motivation. David had done nothing to deserve having been hunted for well into 10 years. David's approximately now a 30 year old man and he had entered into Saul's intimate circle of influence by being first the young warrior that gained victory over the Philistines initially in the killing of Goliath, but one who attracted the attention of Saul's daughter, Michael. That relationship has gone away. In the 10 years it made it only probably through the first, with hazard. And This was really the fault of King Saul. He separated the two in what was a union. He had a great son-in-law and literally forced him out of the home. So when you see the application of David's song, you can see that he's applying the principles that we just read. When he could have said things that highlighted the bad, the judicially accurate indictments against Saul. He chose to magnify Saul and magnify Jonathan with his father. Let's take a look at the song as it unfolds. David, in verse 17, lamented with his lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. And so, David is giving literally a command that says, this song I want to have a place high in the area of worship and praise. It's going to be a biography of exaltation for a team of men who gave their last ounce of strength for the cause of Israel. See, David was even able to take not only a spiritual high plane but he was also able to say nationally these brothers gave their life against an enemy and I wasn't that enemy and even though many years have been squandered in the chase of Saul after me Saul went forward and gave his last ounce of strength for the cause of defending Israel, David could wrap his heart around that. David had a bigger heart for God, that's true, but he could wrap his heart around a national heart that Saul had for his people to take his sons into battle. It probably is true that They wouldn't necessarily have thought the battle would have gone bad. But we do know that Saul was cued in by a visit that God allowed from Samuel that basically said, tomorrow at this time, you're going to be with me. Now, if I had information concerning this time tomorrow that I'm not going to be alive, I will be honest. The bigger part of me that's spiritual would say, great then let me prepare myself for that day. But the other part of me would say, okay, so I'm just gonna delay the situation a little bit. Just, I'm just If it's gonna happen there, I'm not going to be there. If it's gonna happen over there, I'll definitely be somewhere else. But if I can delay it, have a little bit more connection time with the family and talk things over with God, just a little bit more thoroughly, making sure I'm just, I'm ready. You know, there's a part of me that says that information would have created a dilemma for me. I mean, if I had the liberty to move, we've seen both Peter and Paul in the scriptures, no liberty to move, but but definitely an attitude that says, bring it on, I'm ready. For Paul, it meant losing his head, and for Peter, it meant being crucified. And both of them said, I'm ready. Mission accomplished. So something admirable is in this that David recognized. And he says that, as this continues with the narration, he he told them to teach this song to the children of Judah. And the emphasis there is is that Judah was the, the praise tribe. They were the ones who technically were to be out in battle on the front line of the battle scene. And the reason that I'm saying this is because it may have been indicative in, in this word right now, of the problem, the tribe that was to be involved in the battle, representing the heart of God and singing the Lord to victory may have not been present. Because that can sometimes happen in our lives. We get bolstered in strength and battle strategy and we forget the battle belongs to the Lord and the Lord loves it when in battle there is a song that is exalting him. A projection of faith through melody and music that exalts him. In the old school of warfare they did begin to employ that as a concept but they used buglers and they used drummers i wouldn't have wanted to be a part of that i wouldn't have minded it at all if i were in the tribe of judah because i think that being a part of the tribe of judah and handling an instrument whether it was guitar or harp or drum, or shofar, I would think, all right, we're good. Because God's with us. It's his battle. But this is why David now, in reflection, is saying, my team and and God's chosen are going to be taught this song. It'll be a number one hit. I want it to be meditated on, and I want it to be presented with frequency in honor of this event and so in verse 19 the song opens as the beauty of Israel is slain on your high places what is the beauty of Israel um, capturing in our mind and really what it's capturing is is in the bloodiest of battles David is acknowledging the fundamental identity of these men in spirit, soul, and body. He's recognizing the beauty of the monarchy and the beauty of a patriarch and the beauty of fraternity. These are things that David is acknowledging as a beautiful work of God lived out in real time by these men dying in their capacity, in their particular positions. And it's team spirit. And one of the things that David also is seeing in this is that there was a son, Jonathan, who we would say was David's best friend, who at this time probably was about 58 years of age. And his father, Saul, would have been about a 75-year-old. This son that's before the next one, very likely is in his, you know, mid-40s. And David is acknowledging there's this special camaraderie that they gave everything that they had. Sons to their father, a father for his sons, and one for all and all for one. It may have been, in one way, a means by which Saul showed the ultimate respect for a hopeless situation in which he knew he was going to die. And probably, you know, as we see that he did take his life, I'm sure that his preference would have been that his life had been completely taken there. The motivation for him falling on his sword was that he would not experience the desecration of his body what the philistines would do to him we made that comparison that unlike saul jesus truly allowed everything that in this case saul would have avoided to in fact happen to him mm-hmm. and so david is saying this is a gory event, but it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful demonstration of what men will do for nation and ultimately for God. He is considering the best of these men, and in particular, one who would have been qualified as his enemy. David never understood why, and even by admission, Saul would say, I don't know why I'm doing this. You're much more worthy than I am. On two occasions, forgive me, my son. Forgive me, my son. But David does not make mention of that. Not a song sung blue. A song that is declaring the royal colors, even that we could say are Israel's today. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not. In the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. And so David is just precautioning the unnecessary voicing of this, that it might not become fodder. Front page, slanderous, mocking news. The scriptures tell us that love covers a multitude of sin. And David's exercising this by one, what he will not say about Saul, but also what he does not want to be said concerning what the Philistines have done. He doesn't want to turn this into a Star, Globe, Washington Times, New York Post. He doesn't want to have it corrupted from what he is endeavoring to say is the true integrity of this battle and that takes a lot of heart that takes a man filled with a lot of God's heart and he's saying if it gets out it's going to have the wrong emphasis and it's going to make my song less than what it is to be it's to be a banner song O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there. So all of their armor was taken. And it says, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Poetic language saying, The magnificent shield of Saul was not found and yet in this battle it was not defiled oh the enemies perhaps have it we know that there was an Amalekite that came but the articles that he could bring I don't believe were the shield that was an altogether different instrument And David is saying in this battle and his shield would have been extraordinary. It would not have been defiled in ultimately how he died from the blood of the slain verse 22 and from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back and the sword of Saul did not return empty. These guys fought hard father and son that's pretty extraordinary we do have some unique stories of fathers and sons who contributed their lives their resources of uh, patriotism in the revolutionary war and the civil war world war one world war two korea vietnam very extraordinary now my brothers were just a little bit behind my father, but but my eldest brother was serving at the time that my father was serving. And that would have been David, who was in the Army. My father was a Marine. And so I can say that together, they actually were patriots simultaneously. And another brother was coming up the line, that's my second eldest brother, to become ultimately an aviator in the Marine Corps. And then another brother later to come up the food line and that would have been my twin brother Marine Corps also. But this is showing us that right now they were warriors to the last breath. They were giving it all for God, giving it all for their nation, giving it all for one another. Back to back, however it worked, they fought till one by one they succumbed to the enemy. And David is marking that as a noble attribute of being warriors. And it says much, because Jonathan could have, and we'll see, made a choice to follow with David and to become a part of David's future kingdom. And this was a son who chose to be with his father, even though there are many things that he could have begrudged his father for. Talk about a principle lived out. When you see that demonstrated in which someone in leadership is unworthy of the subordinate, those working beside and underneath them, all have reasons why they ought not, but they stick it out. God looks at that and says, you're a man, you're a spiritual man. You're sticking it out with someone that doesn't deserve you. But what you're doing right now, in sticking it out with someone who doesn't deserve you, you're magnifying me and the grace that I am affording through you. And it's a wonderful lesson. When we get in those positions and there's the only reason for us to turn our backs and give up is because of... Then we have to ask ourselves, is the move... Right now, what God wants me to do, or is there a bigger statement that God wants me to make in sticking it out? And I'm not saying that every person has to stick it out. I'm saying that God can help us make those decisions. And what this says is that Jonathan's Jonathan's um, choice to be with his father is truly saying that that um, he was going to forgive his father for the way he treated David. And if necessary, he would die with his father as an act of uh, worship, as an act of honoring what the family is to be about. We give ourselves over to one another in the family uniquely, unlike any other sacrifice. We give ourselves up for our families. And by the way, that is something that in principle we see played out when we become Christians because we become a family of God's. And so we make sacrifices for others. That is just what we would do for those in our nuclear family. And it's extraordinary. People go, why would you do that? And then we say, well, they're family. They're family? They have ever same last name? Well, yes, Christian. They're family. And that's, by the way, our first name too. It's a double-double. So this is David expressing honor to these men. We went out valiantly, 75 and 58-year-old. Probably about 17 years that separated the father and the eldest son. Not unusual in, in that culture for a man to be married at 17 or 18 and have their children pretty quickly. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. What we... I do believe we could say that about Jonathan. I'm not sure if, in what we've studied, we could say that about Saul, but David's not accentuating that. And that, again, is an important thing to see right now. He's not going to allow a song to be sung blue, he won't do that. Pleasant in their lives and in their death. They were not divided, a tribute to their warrior spirit and commitment. They were swifter than the eagles. They were stronger than the lions. I like that. Now, he could be remembering them when he was just a little young lad at 15 or 16. But David was no slouch. He literally became a general over men that were seasoned warriors, hardened and the requirements of handling a sword and taking on enemy forces. But again, he's finding language that is poetically exalting. Swifter than eagles, stronger than lions, is what he says about them. Can we find poetic language to describe people, that others might think differently about. And maybe we have impressions equally. One certainly could have deserved the accolade, but David just throws the father in rather than throwing him under the bus, which is a term we use today saying dispense with any thing, anyone for the sake of preserving yourself or for what it is they deserve. It means sacrificing to your advantage. David doesn't do that. His perspective is altogether different. Oh, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and with luxury and put ornaments of gold on your apparel. We don't hear that much about Saul, but David is actually saying that he seemed to have exercised a kindness towards the community of spiritual women. Now, In the culture, there's a separation between what kings became entitled to have, which were harems. It was never God's heart. But the daughters of uh, Israel indicate a broader consideration. And it would seem to me that he was one that had considerations for them that David admired. Thoughtfulness, a, a gentleman's heart. And he wanted them to be blessed. So even though perhaps mano y mano, not so good to his men, very harsh and ruthless, he seemed to have had a tender expression, one that seems to represent a wholesome consideration of the daughters of Israel. David highlights that in what he is saying about that. How the mighty have fallen, verse 25. In the midst of the battles, Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed, verse 26, for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Poetic language right now that is saying Jonathan exercised one of the most perfect loves, which is agape love, the love of God, which is an absolute surrender. It's a selfless love. It is a sacrificial love. It is a forgiving love. It is a merciful love. Everything that the Father, that Jesus represented in his life, David is able to accentuate. In fact, David probably is giving as a typology Literally, that whom would come from uh, his very body, the lineage of Jesus, he actually is describing quite well the heart of God the Father for the expression of his love through the Son, agape, perfect love, unbiased love, protective love, enriching love. We sometimes say that, yeah, that would be so impressive to be impressive to the gals, to have a fawning of them over us. Well, David knew what that attention was like. In fact, it's one of the things that ticks Saul off to begin with, is that the woman that he was very kind to found a deep attraction for David. And to the degree that Saul got ticked because it was said that the songs they were writing about David were more than what they had been writing about Saul. (laughs) He was losing uh, his top billing for being a swooner. And David right now is saying, by no comparison, an agape love that truly is given exceeds that of of what is seemingly a man's and woman's desire in terms of special koinonia in the bond of marriage and jonathan's the one that right now is credited he was ready to give his robe and sword and did so to david one whom he was above in rank In the monarchy position, he would have been the prince of Israel. He rightfully, by lineage, should have come into the place that ultimately David would be anointed for, and he gave it up. Just as we see Jesus as the chief architect of the world, the reigning Lord and King of all the earth, the one who is our great high priest. And he, he literally has given himself entirely over to us in giftings opportunities that very often we can make boasts and he getting very little credit for. And so David is just exemplifying this love, this brotherly love but even deeper than that this agape godly love that jonathan had for him his brother jonathan you've been very pleasant to me your love to me was wonderful and there's a distinction between love for him and love to him the to him implies literally the absolute surrender of any motivation that can remotely be found selfish. What do I get out of it? Nothing to do with that. It's an embellishing of the emotion and the generosity of the outpouring of the heart and the thinking of the mind. It has no expectation of any return whatsoever. It doesn't require it nor does God require that of us. What we get to understand in that is the Lord is delighted in our response. Just like when a baby is nursing and cooing, the response of the child is satisfactory and overwhelmingly rewarding to the mother. That's hearing it, the burbling and gurgling and the swallowing, the pushing, the desire to nestle in close. Those are response cycles in a baby that are incredibly rewarding for the mother. And the mother doesn't need anything more than that. It's completely a doting sacrificial love that accepts the response, but requires nothing other than that. And this is what David is acknowledging in his brother, Jonathan how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. And so in the conclusion, he says emphatically, these were mighty men that have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Meaning that they served a purpose, but that purpose is no longer under obligation for weapons. It's over and done with. This is a closed chapter is what he's saying. He's not suggesting that they do any other thing but pay tribute to these men who have lost their life, which is another interesting principle because in one sense, it's a turning of the cheek that Jesus did in fact teach on. Now we will see that the Philistines will inevitably be subdued but there's a season as we move into chapter two right now in which david is just collecting the resource of what god is doing in his personality in his temperance in solidifying and codifying those who see him as one projected to be king but at this time is not king how will he behave It would seem that upon Saul's death, literally this is his entrance, but it's not yet. Because he waits upon the Lord and he gets a directive that he will follow. And one of the things, again, I believe is a tribute to David is because rather than singing the blues, which when you do, when you emphasize the negative and you provoke others to cheer you on and your disgruntledness, your assessment about how bad life has been to you, then what that does is it moves you in to follow the course of making literally what you think about life become your life. David says, I'm going to sing a praise song. The nation of Israel will be taught it and my singers are going to begin singing it in three part harmony. Not a song sung blue, but a song sung in benevolence to God, giving the attributes of men who in my eyes shall only be noted for good.